Once again, I invite you to uh, open to Ephesians chapter 4. And while we read the first 16 verses today, our message will focus on uh, growing together in verses 4 through 16. We live in a shallow, divided, sinful world. That's not really a surprise. It doesn't take a lot of deep spiritual insight for us to look around and see that we collectively, in our society, far beyond our society, are shallow. We're divided. And we are sinful. Too often, unfortunately, so is the church. We were meant for more than this. The reality of life in Christ is that He has given us not only His grace in making us right with Him, but He has given us in His grace a family, and a home, and a mission. In the first three chapters of Ephesians, Paul has been establishing for us what it means to be in Christ. So he celebrates the incredible truth that, he has, that God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. That he has placed us into Christ. God has chosen us and He has predestined us for adoption to be holy and blameless in His sight. God did this. Not any part of us, not any part of our righteousness or our worthiness. In fact, He goes on in chapter 2 to say that we were dead. Not, not sick. We were dead in our sins. Separated from God, strangers to his covenant, foreigners to his people. We were strangers, not citizens, but in Christ, by God's grace, unmerited favor. That we receive, not by some special spiritual commodity, but by receiving in faith, trusting, accepting as true, and embracing as meaningful. The reality of Christ and our ability to do so comes from God. So there's no reason for us to be boasting about, well, you know, I, I understand this and you unspiritual people, you don't get it. it. It's all from God. His grace. Our faith that we receive as a gift from Him. Because we're His workmanship. God is doing something in us. And it's not optional, it is the, the good works that he has created in, him, in advance for his people in Christ to do. He laid these things out, he set us up, he is developing and has already created in us his masterpiece. So that we might be together as his church, the display of his character the reflection of the reality of Christ to the praise of God's glorious grace. How can
can we go on living like we did when we belonged to this world? At that time, dead in our sins, we did what any dead fish does in the river. It goes along. It flows with the current. We did the same thing. We lived according to the ways of this world. We were conformed to the pattern of this world. The picture in Romans 12.1 is of being, or in 12.2 is of being pressed into a mold. The pressure of this world causes us to be like everyone else. If we've been made alive in Christ by God's grace, objects of wrath by nature, deserving nothing but His wrath, and yet God has chosen to set His affections on us, why in the world would we ever want to go back to living for this world? As if this down here, this moment, this temporary life is what ultimately matters. It doesn't. So in chapters 4, 5, and 6, Paul establishes this reality that if you're in Christ, brother, you better look like it. You should have a family resemblance to him as the character qualities of God manifest in Jesus himself come out through you because of his spirit inside working out your salvation on the outside. In this particular section, we see in the, in the first three verses of chapter 4, uh, sort of a preamble, as he kind of summarizes what he's going to be saying throughout chapters 4 and 5 especially, and into chapter 6 as well. In the first three verses, we see as a prisoner for the Lord then, Paul, having experienced the cost of following Jesus, he's not you know, living some Pollyanna life, sitting in an ivory tower, uh, telling them how to live. He is imprisoned for Christ as a prisoner for the Lord. Then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Not to gain the calling, not to earn your salvation by living right, but because you have been saved, because you have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ, because you have been adopted and made His child rather than His enemy, I urge you to live like it. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient. Bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. He's been establishing this idea of the church throughout the letter. In fact, in every chapter of this letter, there's a reference to the church, either uh, in, in the word that we translate the church or in some synonym that makes it clear that we're talking about this body life. There is a togetherness, a oneness, a unity. And in Chapter 1, verse 10, we see Paul's purpose in writing the letter. In fact, you can glance back there with me. In Ephesians 1, verse 10, just to, be, just to begin the, the sentence and thought, let's back up to verse 7. 10 is our focus here. In Him, in Christ, we have redemption through His blood. He has bought us back from our enslavement to sin. The forgiveness of sins. He's paid our debt and cleared our ledger. In accordance with the riches of God's grace 
that he lavished on us. He doesn't give us his grace grudgingly, but he pours it out richly with all wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ. Here's our point. What is the mystery of of God's will that he purposed in Christ? This whole thing is to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment. Here it is. To bring unity to all things. To bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. This is the theme of the letter to the Ephesians. That God is bringing all things together in Christ... It is under Christ's feet that all things exist. Under His kingdom rule, where Jesus reigns supreme. It has already been done. It has already been declared and decreed from before time began. Reflected in Genesis 3.15, where, where God says there's going to be a serpent crusher who will come and defeat the enemy. But all through the scriptures pointing forward to the cross and all through the New Testament scriptures pointing back to the cross, we see that the enemy is already defeated in Christ. He is already reigning. In fact, there's never been a time when he was not reigning. Let that sink in for just a moment. While he hung on the cross dying for our sins, while he was buried in the ground, dead in his body, Christ was still Lord. Today, far too often the church does not live as if Christ is actually Lord. I'm going to go off script for just a moment here. I just want to process this thought before it leaves me completely. It won't leave me completely. It'll come up at the wrong time. We get really bent out of shape sometimes over the wickedness in the world, don't we? Say amen if you've been bent out of shape about the wickedness in the world. Our focus needs to be less on the world and more on the house of God. Our focus on exterminating wickedness needs to come in-house, in the family. Those who wear His name must Look like Jesus. Let's stop worrying about all the sins out there when unbelievers shockingly act like unbelievers. Oh my gosh, who would have figured? And let's put a little more focus on the person in the mirror, on the body in the church. Believers acting like believers so that we can reflect the reality of Christ through the relationships that He gives us in this life. Pressing forward, as we work through this, as we work through this text in in verses 4, which we saw last week as a foundation for that preamble in the first three verses, it's really kind of a transition that serves as a foundation for what comes after as well in these next, uh, next several verses. And we'll be looking at all of this together under this core reality, this is the, the 
melodic line, if you will, for those of you who have been studying Ephesians with us on Wednesday nights. The Lord gives His church diversity to develop maturity, producing unity that reflects His reality. Let me read that for you again. The Lord gives His church diversity to develop maturity, producing unity that reflects His reality. All right? So in Christ, I have a place to belong, I have a purpose to fulfill, and I have a people to serve. He gives me a home, a mission, and a family. Let's develop this. There are going to be uh, six points that we're going to see here. First, we see in verses 4 through 6, foundational oneness, spiritual wholeness. Foundational oneness, spiritual wholeness. There's one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Let me read those verses again. I I really think we can't read Scripture nearly enough. It's impossible for us to get too much of God's Word. It's very possible for us to get too much of the preacher's opinion. So let's stay real close to God's word. Here's here's what these verses say. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. There's one body. This is a reference to the church. There's only one church. There's lots of denominations now. When he wrote this, there weren't. There are lots of denominations now really growing out of what Paul said to the Corinthian church. It's good, actually, that there are divisions among you so that we can see who's approved of God and who's not. The reason that Paul would say it's good that there are divisions is not that that inherently God seeks division, the opposite, but that because our sinful minds veer from God's perfect doctrine, the faith once for all entrusted to the saints, as we veer away from the centrality of Christ reigning supremely over our lives, we end up getting off track into different different understandings. And because we have imperfect understandings, it's going to be necessary in the body to discern what is right and what is wrong. That's necessary. We'll see later on in the text that 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 specific type of division in discerning what is right and what is wrong ultimately, in the long run, leads to a perfect unity. Doctrine divides temporarily, but it unifies ultimately, and we'll see that as we go along. There's a foundational oneness here. There's one body. And one spirit, the Holy Spirit of God, in us, in every believer, beginning in in Acts chapter 2, when we see the Holy Spirit come upon the church, fill the believers, and everything changed. The church was born. And with the Holy Spirit in us, as Paul says in chapter 1 here, 
and in a deposit within us guaranteeing our inheritance. In other words, the fulfillment of everything that God has promised to those who are in Him in that final day of judgment comes to fruition and all the fullness of God's inheritance for His children is delivered. In the meantime, God's own personal presence inside every believer in the person of the Holy Spirit is a present reality. It goes on to say we were called to one hope when you were called. We're going to take some time over the next few weeks to develop some specifics within this uh, same passage that we're looking at today. We'll talk about what this unity is, is all about, what it means to grow up in maturity in Christ, what it means to use our gifts for the building up of the body. For now, as you see this idea of one hope that we're called to, our hope is Christ. Our hope is God's kingdom come. His kingdom rule manifest on earth, first now in the church as a foretaste of forever, a foretaste of eternity, and ultimately when God establishes the new heavens and new earth under the direct reign and rule of Christ. This is our hope, one hope. Unfortunately, we've been splintered too often, placing our hope in religion. The church was not called to place our hope in religion. The church was not called to place our hope in the church. The church is the embodiment of that one hope, the hope of Christ. The hope of salvation. Good news. Because the bad news is pervasive, ubiquitous, and overwhelming. The reality of our sinful separation from God cannot be avoided. But the good news that God offers us life as a free gift for which He paid the highest price, that good news binds us all together. That's our one hope to which we were called. The reality of life with God, from God, for God. One baptism is an indication of the identification with the body. The identification together with the church, the body of Christ, identifying with His death, identifying with His resurrection. And there has grown since that time division in understanding of this doctrine. What is baptism? But in any form of baptism, in any teaching of baptism within orthodox, accepted, biblically sound Christianity, the purpose remains the same, the identification with Christ and His body. Some may place more efficacy on that than others. Here at Real Life, we believe that the Bible teaches clearly and specifically a credo or credo baptism. In other words, a baptism by confession of faith so that we are baptized in the water signifying what I believe Paul intends here, the true baptism of the Holy Spirit. I think that's the baptism he's actually talking about. 
the baptism of the Holy Spirit that makes us one in Christ, that unites us to Christ, is symbolized in the act of baptism as we practice it here by immersion in accordance with our faith in Christ, not in itself efficacious toward anything, not in itself gaining us points, not in itself making us Christ followers, but because we have been baptized in His Holy Spirit. Now we're baptized in the water. In any case, the, the single purpose of baptism in the church and the single baptism of the Holy Spirit of the church gives us a unity and a wholeness. There's one God, one Father of all. There is no other option. All roads do not lead to God. All religions do not lead to paradise. The God of the Bible is the Father, the source, the authority over all. He is running through all and is in all. Notice this. You can mark this down. The wholeness and peace we all long for is found in the reality of the gospel. The wholeness and peace we all long for is found in the reality of the gospel. In other words, because God is one, we who are in Christ are one. There is no connection to God apart from Christ. As a corollary to that, the converse is also true. In Christ, there is no disconnection from God. If you are in Christ, it doesn't matter what your background is, Jew, Gentile, rich, poor, black, white, American, Egyptian, doesn't matter. If you're in Christ, you are connected to God as His child in a relationship that can never be undone because you didn't do it. God did. Foundational oneness, spiritual wholeness. Christ gives diverse gifts out of His riches for building the church unto unity, stability, and the work of mutual edification. We see this truth based on that foundation of God's oneness, our only hope for spiritual wholeness. Notice our next point. In verses 7 and 8, we see sovereign grace, victorious bounty. Sovereign grace, victorious bounty. Paul writes, but to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. Verse 7, but to each one of us, grace has been given us as Christ, Christ apportioned it. Notice, each person, each one in Christ. There are no believers, there are no children of God in Christ who are born again, who do not receive or have not already in him received gifts from God. Christ has given these gifts from His grace by His own sovereign determination. He decides what you get, right? 
when mom and dad give you Christmas presents, they might work off of your list. Man, one of the things that always drives me crazy is when you have a list and mom and dad go down that checklist so kids grow up thinking, hey, as long as I say it, I get it, right? I'm going to get everything that I want on my list. I kind of like the surprise of mom and dad saying, I'm going to get you something better than you expect. I'm going to get you, I know you want that trinket that is shiny and cool and all the hip kids have it. You can tell you're not a hip kid when you say hip kids, right? But I also know it's a worthless piece of junk that's going to be broken two weeks from now. You're not going to care about it. I got something better for you. Unlike us, because as a parent, I can guess at what my kids want. And I might be wrong. Never. My son says always. I take back that baseball bat there. So anyway, and the life that I gave you, don't forget that part. <laughs> Distracted by family squabbles. So speaking about unity in the family, right? So we're, when we see the gifts that, that Christ gives us, they're gifts of grace, undeserved. That's the nature of grace. He doesn't owe you anything, but he gives each one of us grace as he sees fit, according to his perfect sovereign will. I give my gifts to my children out of my sovereign will, but my sovereignty is limited to my family and my wisdom is severely limited. God's gifts are always perfect. Always. Christ gives grace to each one of us. We'll see that develop. This is the beginning of what he's developing over the next several verses. He gives each of these gifts according to his sovereign grace. And then Paul does an interesting thing here. He quotes Psalm 68, 18. And he says, this is why it says... When he ascended on high, David writing of Christ before he knew of Christ, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. This seems sometimes, maybe it seems this way to you, it always seemed this way to me, kind of a weird quote. I'm like, what does that have to do with anything? Ride with me for a moment. When, when we look at Psalm 68, 18, in fact, go ahead and turn there just so you can look at it for yourself. If you're not sure whether it is, go to the middle of your Bible, and you'll probably land right in the Psalms. If not, you'll be very close to it. Find Psalm 68. If you're not sure where that is, it comes right after Psalm 67 and right before Psalm 69. I went to math class when I was a kid. Let's back up to 15 so we have the context in this particular stanza of the psalm. Okay, so David is writing this psalm intended to be sung among the people, a song of praise. And he says here, Mount Bashan, majestic mountain, Mount Bashan, rugged mountain. Why gaze and envy you, rugged mountain, at the mountain where God chooses to reign, where the Lord himself will dwell forever. Now check this out. Bashan is the that's the mighty rugged mountain, right? Mount Zion. We've all heard of Mount Zion. 
Zion's hill where Jerusalem is, the city of David, the city of kings, where Christ will establish his kingdom. Zion ain't nothing but a hill. It's just a little hill. It's not a mountain, not like, not like Bashan or some of these other mountains in the area. But God chose the hill to be his mighty mountain. He continues, the chariots of God are tens of thousands and thousands of thousands. The Lord has come from Sinai, Sinai into his sanctuary. When you ascended on high, you took many captives. You received gifts from people. Oops, wait a minute. Notice this in the quote. When you ascended on high, you took many captives. You received gifts from people, even from the rebellious, that you, Lord God, might dwell there. The picture that David has is the same picture that Paul wants us to see. Shifted a little bit in the minds of his readers because they are largely Gentile. They're in a pagan city in a first century time. So they're under Roman rule. They understand the concept that he is getting. Some of them uh, who are Jews, probably Hellenic Jews. In other words, they're largely Greek influence. But they would understand this quoting of David. As they're getting it, the concept that, that David is writing about is a king entering the city in victory, having conquered, having won. And he brings, with, he brings captives in his train. That would happen very often. As they would enter the city, they would enter with a parade of those that have been captured. And they receive plunder. They receive the gifts from those They've conquered. And he says to God here, even those who are rebellious, this is the mighty picture of victorious God. So flip it to Paul. What does he say to the Ephesians? If we're, we're back in Ephesians 4, Paul seems to misquote. Wow, did he just say misquote about the Bible? Verse 8, this is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. David says, received gifts from people. Paul says, gave gifts to his people. This is a common practice, by the way. It's not a misquoting by accident. It's an interpretive quoting deliberately to take that citation from the Old Testament and then to apply it in the quoting. And as he does this, as he lays this out for them, he makes the leap from the conquering king. They're probably picturing a Roman emperor where David pictured a Jewish or a Hebrew king. But now, as they're seeing this, having received these gifts, the conquering king doesn't hold on to the plunder, as you might expect, from an earthly king. But he distributes these gifts. The plunder from the victory doesn't go into the coffers of the king, but is richly and graciously distributed to his people. Here, as he says this, he says, when he ascended on high, when he took his seat, think back to the psalm as he ascends to the hill of Zion. When he ascends on high, he takes his captives, and here he gives gifts 
to his people. Paul is making that connection that Jesus has won the victory. And in winning the victory, he has gained this victorious bounty. And he distributes it to his people. The Christian Standard Bible renders uh, that portion about taking captives a little more literally, as do the Amplified and the New King James Version. They say, uh, the Christian Standard Bible says, he took the captives captive. The Amplified Version, the New King James and a few others say, he led captivity captive. So when Jesus wins, he takes captive captivity. One commentator that I read said that he took captive those who were held captive. In other words, we who once were enslaved to sin, we have been captured now as captives of God. We have been received and we are in a sense, the gifts. He has given us the gift of life. He has given us as a gift to the world. And here's specifically Paul's point. He has given us spiritual gifts, as we'll see in a few moments, for the building up of the church. Mark this down. Because Christ is Lord of all, He gives His people good gifts according to His own will. Because Christ is Lord of all, He gives His people good gifts according to His own will. We see foundational oneness, spiritual wholeness. We've looked at His sovereign grace and victorious bounty. As we are working through this idea, never lose sight of the fact that the entire letter is a picture of of all things being reconciled to God in Christ. God bringing all things together under His kingdom rule in Christ. So our next point here, as we look at verses 9 and 10, is eternal divinity. Let me try saying that again so I don't sound like I don't know how to talk. Eternal divinity, chosen humanity. Eternal divinity, chosen humanity. Verse 9, what does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. Uh, Commentators have some disagreements. Sound well-versed, well-educated theologians can come to some different conclusions about what Paul means here about his descent. Some would say uh, that, that this is a reference to, to what Peter says, that Jesus descended even into hell and preached to the spirits in prison. And, and some see that here, and, and I, I could see their case. I don't think that that's necessary to our understanding of the text. I think the translation here in the NIV Uh, captures what I believe to be Paul's point. And from the context, it seems to fit better. It's easy for us to say descended into these lowest regions and see that as a reference to to going into Hades and and, uh, taking captive there uh, those who 
who are held waiting for Christ. I'm not going to argue that, but I don't think that's really the case. I don't think it fits the context of what Paul is writing. Paul's talking about him, him establishing in us, by his victory, a kingship. This picture here is of eternal divinity and chosen humanity. He ascended into heaven. But before he ascended into heaven, Christ, because he is God himself, the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, eternally co-eternal, co-existent with God, and he descended, as Philippians 2 says, he humbled himself. And he came down here from up there. And he even descended further into the grave, into the, the heart of the earth. As he won his victory at the cross, there was no suffering left for Jesus to do in hell. That's not accurate. But did he descend into Hades? Well, yes, we see elsewhere that he did. I don't think that's the reference here, though. It's a picture of the completion of the task. He who was always God chose to become one of us that he might take our sin upon himself on the cross and descend into the grave. I don't think he's referring specifically to the, to the resurrection in his ascent. He might be. But it seems from the context that he's actually referring to his returning to heaven. Right? He's ascending above everything else, higher than all the heavens, in order to fill the whole universe. He didn't do that at his resurrection. He did that at his ascension, following the resurrection. So that seems to be the case. In, in, in any case, the, the main things are the plain things, and the plain things are the main things. And what we can see clearly, irrefutably from this, is that Jesus has always been God. He has always been divine. He was above, and He descended to become one of us. He who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. And then having descended to us, or condescended to become one of us, He then ascended higher than all the heavens to fill the universe. Mark this down. Jesus is uniquely qualified to be our Savior and Lord because He is both fully God and fully human. Jesus is uniquely qualified, the only one, the only one to have this hypostatic union, the, the, the combined dual nature of both God and man. No one else, only Him. Because He has this dual nature, He's uniquely qualified to be our Savior, to take our place on the cross, to pay our penalty because He is one of us and yet without sin. And also because He is God Himself, He is uniquely qualified to be our Lord, our Master, to reign over all things and personally to reign over my life. He's uniquely qualified to be our Savior and Lord because He is both fully God and fully human. Notice our next point as we look at verses 11 and 12. 
We see diverse gifts and purposeful ministry. Diverse gifts, purposeful ministry. Read what Paul says in verse 11 and 12. So Christ himself, who's, who's doing the giving here? Tell me, you heard it. Say it again. Say it with confidence. Christ himself. So Christ himself gave the apostles. They didn't appoint themselves. It wasn't the church. It wasn't, it wasn't some hierarchy. It was Christ himself who gave the apostles. It was Christ himself who gave the prophets. Those who spoke God's word as his mouthpieces. So Christ himself gave the evangelists. Those who take the message beyond the church. Christ himself gave the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. These are some of the gifts, but don't forget verse 7 where he says, each one, to each one of us grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. Here are some. This is an example. It's not intended to be exhausted. I, I contend that none of Paul's lists of spiritual gifts are intended to be exhausted. The church in America in particular has spent 40 years focusing on an exhaustive list of spiritual gifts, and every believer has one of these things. I don't think that's what Paul intended. He very seldom does exhaustive lists. He gives exemplary lists so that we see it, we understand the idea but we don't restrict what God is doing other than where God restricts what He is doing. These are some. Remember that each of us have gifts, but don't miss out on the point. The point of all of our gifts is the same as the point given here for these leading and teaching gifts. It's the, it's the building up of the church through the service of the church. Mark this down. The gifts Jesus gives to us are for the purpose of serving and building up His church for His glory. The gifts Jesus gives to us are for the purpose of serving and building up His church for His glory. The Lord gave His church diversity to foster maturity, leading to unity. He gives us a diversity of gifts. The intention of each of these gifts is to serve the body of Christ so that the body of Christ may be built up. The gifts Jesus gives us are for the purpose of serving and building up His church for His glory. Notice the next point. Doctrinal maturity, relational unity. Doctrinal maturity, relational unity. Verse 13 builds off of what he said in 11 and 12. So we'll start with 11 and read through it. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith. If I were underlining this in my Bible, I would underline in the faith. Until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge... Another thing I would underline. And in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Let's work backwards through this. 
How do we attain to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ? In other words, how do we become so much like Christ that it's virtually indistinguishable, his character from our own? That's our destiny, by the way. If we go back and read the earlier chapters of Ephesians, that is our destiny, that we will be perfectly conformed to the likeness of Christ. When will that happen? When we see him face to face, as we see in 1 Corinthians 13. We'll be like him, as we see in, in Thessalonians, as we see in Revelation, as we see even in the Psalms, this picture that we will not be perfectly like him. We'll be increasingly like him, but we won't be perfectly like him until we are in paradise with him. But all of this growth in attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ comes as we become mature. How do we become mature? In fact, what do we even mean by mature? We mean the same thing we mean in any other sense. Grown up. And when we talk about the maturity of a person, of a human being, of an animal, of a plant, there is always behind it, may not always be in our conversation, but behind it, there is a reproductive aspect to that. Maturity involves the ability to reproduce. If we're going to be, if we're going to have productive plants, they have gone to seed in their maturity and they're able to reproduce plants. When we're talking about animals or humans, there is a reproductive maturity that comes when you're able to reproduce. The same is true of disciples of Christ. When we grow in Him, we reproduce other disciples. There is a reproductive quality in our growing up. If we're going to attain to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ, we need to become mature. How do we become mature? How do we grow up in Him? We do this by serving and building up the church, by being built up as I grow I do this until we all reach unity in the faith. This reference to the faith is a secondary use of that phrase. When we're talking about faith, we're, we are most often in these epistles talking about the, the trust, the acceptance, the believing. That's not what it's talking about here. This is flipping that noun around so that it's not just that we believe, it is what we believe. When you see it referred to the faith here, it is virtually always talking about doctrine. The creeds of the church at that time, even before the New Testament was put together, they were putting together creeds to summarize what the church believed, what unified us. Not that those creeds were in themselves authoritative at the level of Scripture, but they were authoritative as far, as far as orthodoxy went when they drew from the Scripture and said, this is what we believe. These things we pull out from God's Word and we hold them to be eternally true. And when, when we see here, Paul has already entrusted uh, to, to the church the teachings of the apostles... In Acts chapter 2, we see a picture of the early church, and it says they're devoted. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings, to doctrine. That's what doctrine means, is teachings. 
So here he's saying, as we grow up in the faith, as we reach unity in the faith, unity in the teachings, the doctrines, what does that mean? As we grow up, as we grow deeper, as we study God's Word, he's literally saying, until we all believe the exact same thing. When's that going to happen? Hasn't happened yet, has it? We don't all necessarily believe the same thing in this room. There are lots of places where we have some wiggle room, some gray area. How is that? When we are with Him and we see Him as He is and our minds are opened fully and all of these things that we have grown up in, we come to the fullness and we say, hey, you know what? That preacher was wrong. And this one was right. Or both those preachers were wrong. But the Word of God was always right. It's not that there will be new information, but our eyes will be enlightened more fully. In the meantime, we are progressively growing, progressively becoming more like Christ. That's why if you've been studying the Bible for 40 years, you have a better understanding of it now than you did 40 years ago. If you've been studying the Bible for 40 days, you probably have a better understanding than you did 40 days ago. Our minds are imperfect and incomplete, and so we continue to grow. And as we grow, we are growing more and more if we're holding to the Scriptures, if we're holding to the truth of the Gospel that has been passed on from the Apostles to us through the recorded written Word of God, as we grow in the Word, not in our own understanding, but in leaning on the, the, the Holy Spirit's guidance, trusting in the Lord with our whole heart, not leaning on human wisdom, but trusting God to straighten it out, then we become more alike. We become more unified in what we believe. Someday, all of the divisions of our doctrines will go away because we will all be perfectly unified in the one truth. In the meantime, we grow and we progress so that we understand it better. What does it mean to then be, uh, to have a, a unity in the knowledge of the Son of God? This is different. When he's talking about the faith, it really has to do with knowledge, has to do with the doctrine. But when he's talking about in the knowledge here, it's a relational connotation in knowing Jesus, in the knowledge of the Son of God. We, as we grow, become more and more united in Christ because we become, in a practical sense, because we become more and more united in a practical understanding to Christ. The better we know Him, the more we become like Him, the more we are bound together in Him. And the divisions fade away. We are building up the church. We are, as the church, being built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Doctrinal maturity, relational unity. <clears throat> in Christ, I have a place to belong, a purpose to fulfill, and a people to serve, a home a mission, and a family. Notice this. True unity comes through growing deep. 
and becoming more like Jesus. True unity comes through growing deep and becoming more like Jesus. We have a lot of uh, tendency in our world to, to call unity that which is not unity. If we all just agree not to talk about anything, then we have a sense of peace. But it's only a surface peace. It's not a true unity. We've not been bound together. Moreover, if we all look exactly alike and think exactly alike because we are all cookie cutters, my friend Dan was telling me about life in Ceausescu's Romania as he was growing up. And I never quite realized this the same way, having seen all the Cold War movies when I was growing up during that time. But all the cars had to be the same color. You had to look alike. You couldn't get a four-wheel drive. That was the government only. You had to have the little car. And you didn't get to pick from all these different dealerships to decide what kind you're going to have. You get what you get, and it's the color that the government decides. Do you think there was unity in Romania? No, anything but. But there was uniformity. There was a forced sameness. You understand as we're reading this, oneness is not the same as sameness. It's not the same thing. Let me give you an illustration from the most perfect illustration ever given, ever in the history of the world, because God ordained football to be spiritual. <laughs> on a football team, 11 people on the field, each with a different job. Some are similar, some are greatly dissimilar. What the guard does, some of you say, why are you even talking about this? Bear with me, the Spirit will make it clear to you. So what the guard does is not anything like what the quarterback does. And what the quarterback does is dramatically different than what the wide receiver does. But all of them are united for one purpose, to advance the ball across the goal line. Each job is different. Even among the offensive linemen, each, they all have the job of blocking, but each of their assignments is different. I block a different guy a different way at a different angle to accomplish a single purpose. In the church, this is, by the way, why football is the perfect sport. In the church, we all have different positions and different assignments with one purpose to reflect the reality of God. The reality of God given to us in Jesus Christ. And we do that through relationships as all things are brought together under God's kingdom rule in Christ. So our single purpose of glorifying God is manifest in all of our different gifts, all of our different abilities, all of our different assignments. Not all of you have been assigned to stand in front of people and preach sermons. But if I were to do anything else, I would be failing my assignment. Because this is what God has commanded me to do. For you, if you were to try to do somebody else's job instead of what God assigned to you, you would be sinning by not doing what God intended for you to do. Another perfect illustration from the second most perfect sport, baseball. All you basketball folks will talk later, I guess. But, but in baseball, I was... 
we're, we were coaching a little league at practice the other day. And one of the things, if you've ever been around a little league team, especially a t-ball team, and sometimes a high school varsity team, we had a really good athlete, very gifted, playing in the outfield at that particular moment. And because he was a gifted athlete, he thought the best thing he could do from left center field was to get the ball when it came to him and run down the runner who's going home. <sighs> we chuckled a little bit. We moved on. We can correct that. Come back a little later. Same kid. Still in the outfield. Ball's getting tossed around in the infield. Some errors are happening. And he comes running all the way up into the infield to take the ball away from the kid playing shortstop. There are several of you right here who can experience the pain and frustration of this. That's what happens when we in the church decide, you know what, I, I, I'm tired of my job. I don't really like the gifts that God gave me. I'm like Mount Bashan, and I'm jealous of Zion. I want that gift. I, how come I don't get to be the one who sings up front? How come I don't get to be the one who, who, who leads that Sunday school class? How come I don't get to be the one to do whatever it is that I wish I were doing? When God has called me to do something specific that I'm neglecting. True unity comes through growing deep and becoming more like Jesus. I've got to move on. Next point. Confidence, stability, Corporate reflection. Confident stability, corporate reflection. We saw in, in the last point that true unity comes through growing deep and becoming more like Jesus. In other words, the closer we all are, are to Christ, the closer we are to one another. That carries over into this confident stability, corporate reflection idea that we see in uh, 14, 15, and 16, Paul says this, then we will no longer be infants. Okay, so when, when we are growing deep and that, that depth unifies us, we, we reach a unity in the faith and a knowledge of the Son of God and we become mature, attaining the whole measure of the fullness of Christ, which will be perfectly done when we are in heaven and is increasingly true of us as we recognize that, as I mentioned earlier, stealing from my friend that I've never met, Alistair Begg, the, plain thing, the main things are the plain things and the plain things are the main things. Let's major on the majors and let go of those things that are secondary and tertiary issues. When that happens, we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect. Now notice, this isn't me as an individual. We've already dealt with the individual and in that I, as I grow as an individual, I'm not going to be rocked. I'm not going to be deceived as I grow, but this is a we thing. We will no longer be infants. We will no longer be tossed back and forth and blown here and there. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we, the church, the body, will grow to become in every respect the mature body of Him 
who is the head? That is Christ. From him, from Christ, from the head, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. It seems like that'd be a really good memory verse. I'm going to draw your attention to that by reading verse 16 again and encouraging you to memorize it throughout this week. From Him, from Christ, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, that's us, we are supporting ligaments here, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Hmm. Notice this. The diversity, unity, and maturity of the church is the picture of all things brought together under the kingdom rule of Christ. The diversity, unity, and maturity of the church is the picture of all things brought together under the kingdom rule of Christ. As we grow, as we wrestle with the deep things of God, as we hunger and thirst for righteousness, as we study to show ourselves approved, digging deep into the Word so that we can take those things that we used to say, you know what, I don't want to deal with. You know, that's, that theology, that doctrine, that, you know, that's not really important. Just give me John 3.16 and Jesus loves me and I'm good. Well, that's fine for milk. But at some point, we need meat. And as we wrestle and grow with the deep things of God... We don't grow further apart, we grow closer together. And as we do that, we also gain confidence. So that those who are out here with all of their crafty teaching, somebody say amen if you know there's a lot of false teaching. People with very popular books and podcasts and television programs, people with very large churches with thousands upon thousands of people, gathered to hang on their every word as they tell them how to live their best life here in this world. We can get tossed about by every wave of doctrine that comes along, by those who teach a different gospel for selfish personal gain. Or we can grow deep. So that we know what we know deep in our knower. Because we understand not just what the word says, but why we know that that interpretation is correct. Because we understand how to study the Bible. We've put in the diligent effort. So that when somebody comes along and says, here's a teaching that will tickle your itching ears. We can say, I don't think so, buddy. Let's take a look at what God's word says. Oh, but what about this? Nope. Let's go to the Word. Let's look at the whole counsel of God. Not just a proof text from the cultist at your door. Not just a proof text from the prosperity teacher on your phone or your television. Not something that makes a catchy book phrase so that we can take illustrations from David and Goliath and make it apply to you overcoming obstacles in your life. Not at all what that passage is about. But we can see what God's Word wants us to say. What God's Word wants us to see. What God's Word wants us to share. 
as we become stable and confident and together as the body of Christ, we reflect his reality in these relationships. Notice this. The diversity, unity, and maturity of the church is the picture of all things brought together under the kingdom rule of Christ. As I mentioned earlier, we are the foretaste of forever. The eternal, perfect rule of Christ is foreshadowed in His church. And as we grow more and more like Him, we together as a body reflect the reality of who He is, that He is perfectly loving and perfectly holy, that He is both grace and wrath. And all of this comes together in the truth, the reality of God revealed to us in Jesus Christ. We, the church, get to be the picture of that for the world. Christian maturity is the responsibility of every member of Christ's body. I need to take seriously the corporate commitment of connection to the body, working as a team to grow in Christ, which only happens as we grow deeper in doctrine and greater in love. Because of that, I can recognize the truth that in Christ I have a place to belong, His church, I have a purpose to fulfill the serving and building up of the church, and people to serve the church's the body of Christ and my family. In that kind of oneness, Christ is glorified. The Lord gives His church diversity to develop maturity, producing unity that reflects His reality. Let's pray together. Father God, we as Your people recognize that You are sovereign over all things. And we recognize, Lord, that you have placed all things under Christ's feet. You have brought and are bringing all things together under your kingdom rule in Christ. And he is coming back. He is returning. So, Lord, as a church, as, as a household of faith here within the greater family of God, just part of your body. Help us here. Help us across the globe who are in Christ to be a church ready for you. Like a bride waiting for her groom. Lord, help us to keep our, our lamps trimmed and burning. To make sure that we are about your business at all times. Making disciples as we ourselves grow deep and serve one another in the name of our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. It is in that very name that we pray. Amen.